Welcome to Engaging Ideas, the bi-weekly podcast from Parsons TKO, bringing you conversations with mission-driven leaders and luminaries to shift your perspective and challenge your assumptions on the art of the possible. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Engaging Ideas, the Parsons TKO podcast, where we like to explore all kinds of ideas, innovations, and thoughts in the nonprofit sector to help you imagine the possibility of what can be and start guiding towards a different future state. And as always, we are the nonprofit consulting firm focused on engagement architecture, which is technology road mapping, data analysis, and analytics. If you ever want to talk, feel free to reach out to us. And also, by the time this podcast comes out, we are going to be well over to a year into running engaging ideas and we would love your feedback so please uh, leave us any comments on linkedin or you can feel free to email and i will read all of it at create change at parsons tko.com without further ado today i am joined by my good friend who i've worked with for many many years in many different capacities mr eric johnson who is currently serving as the director of digital access at the Folger Shakespeare Library. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Tony. Great to, great to be on the show here, and I appreciate you inviting me to be on this episode. So glad to have you. I think we're going to have a robust conversation today. Got a bunch of questions lined up. And before we dive into that, though, for anyone who's listening who might not be as familiar with the Folger, if you just want to give us a little background about the Folger, how it's organized and structured, and a little bit about yourself, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So, the Folger Shakespeare Library was founded in 1932 by Henry and Emily Folger. It is located on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Uh, we are definitely in a, in a very, very important neighborhood. Folger is an anomaly for Capitol Hill, for non-private residences on Capitol Hill, in that we're a private institution. We're part of Amherst College in Massachusetts, Folger's uh, gave the the library to Amherst, which uh, Henry Folger had had gone to uh, when he was an undergraduate at, at the time of his his death in the late 1920s. When the Folgers were alive, they assembled the greatest and most extensive extensive collection of the early printed editions of Shakespeare. There are more copies of uh, the the collected the first edition of the collected works of Shakespeare, usually called the first folio. Uh, at the Folger than any other place in the world. So there are 230-some copies of that book still in existence from 1623, and the Folger holds 82 of them, so about uh, roughly a third of of the extant copies. Great libraries of its kind. It has a a worldwide reputation. The Folger is also a multifaceted cultural institution. Uh, It's not just a library. It is also uh, has museum-like qualities. In fact, we are embarked in in a renovation to greatly increase our public exhibition space for when we reopen in fall of 2024. We have been a performing arts space for several decades. Um, We have uh, Folger Theater, which is a very well-regarded theater in in Washington, Folger Consort performing early music. Uh, We have poetry readings. Uh, We have scholarly lectures that are open to the public. So uh, there's there's a lot that, that goes on at the Folger on-site and digitally, which is where uh, I come in. (laughs) The team that I lead is called Digital Media and Publications. Um, And as the name implies, we run a a wide range of digital projects for the Folger. Um, Also, the Folger's publications help guide what the institution does 
um, in terms of the, the the strategies for for digital and and publications. I should say too, I'm on this episode speaking for myself. This is all not necessarily Folger's official voice. That, that said, um, you know, I, I, I remain who I am, and, and um, you know, am, am uh, hopefully ably representing the, the the work of the Folger and the work of my team too. Because I, I don't want to downplay the fact that there's a lot of people who are involved in all the things that we're that we're about to talk about. For myself, I didn't really think that I was going to get into anything digital um, when I graduated from college in the mid-1990s, but the internet was pretty big back then. I had always had an interest in technology. I I knew how to, you know, the rudiments of of programming and and, uh, just sort of fell into working on the web, always thought that I would eventually move out of it and never quite did. One of the most constant themes of my career is that I've been able to work with a lot of different kinds of smart people who need to convey their knowledge to the rest of the world. So I started off and I would say that the things that I've been able to do across all these different realms is provide both technical and editorial leadership. So I've I've been a developer and uh, built some pretty extensive systems, work as, as the lead of development teams, but I've always kept my hand in the editorial side as well. So not just text, but other types of, of production as, as well. As far as the technologies that I've usually worked on, it's been more skewed towards web application developments and CMSs. And that was where uh, Tony and I met, was working on a company that was very much focused on those things as well. Just one last note about how I came to the Folger. When I was getting my master's degree in English, I needed to complete a project, a thesis project, and I was also in the Marine Reserves, was deployed to Iraq in 2003, found myself in a tent in Kuwait after being in Iraq uh, with not a lot to do, but with a laptop and a really crummy internet connection. And I decided that uh, I wanted to build a Shakespeare site. So I started and hoped that that could be the thesis project to complete my master's. When I came home, I had a rudimentary uh, Shakespeare, complete works of Shakespeare sites with a search engine attached to it and uh, convinced George Mason University to give me a, uh, a shot at developing it as my thesis project. And that site became called Open Source Shakespeare, which has also become very popular. Even though there's a lot of other Shakespeare websites out there, uh, still gets a lot of attention for its uh, search engine and the concordance. Um, it hosted 1.3 million people last year. So way back when, uh, before I came to the Folger, they had actually given me some advice. Some of the staff members had given me some advice about building the, the site, which was quite good. Then the Folger had this position, uh, Director of Digital Access, open up in 2012. I looked at the job description and uh, thought maybe it was written just for me. It was not. Um, <laughs> But I uh, applied for it, and uh, yeah, I've been at the Folger since since 2013. Wow. Thank you uh, for all that. And before we dive in, just on one question. So the first folios, I think you've said this before, we have more here in the States than they do in England. Is that correct? Yes, I, I, believe, that's, I believe that's true. There are many different, in, in, in many different places. I, I think the British Library has three copies. Oxford University has one copy. They're definitely in, in the UK, but um, and actually uh, Mesa University in Japan has 18 copies. They're the only ones that I believe they're the only other institution that has uh, double digit 
numbers of, of copies. Wow. And for anyone who has walked by the building before, I think it's the, is it the statue of Puck that's out front with the little saying underneath it? Yes. Midsummer's Night, if memory recalls. It's one of my yep. favorite. I like, I always enjoy seeing Puck out there. <laughs> All right. So, Eric, you've been thinking about online access and experience of materials, just thinking of all of the books you manuscripts you're talking about, right? Even before we heard the name COVID-19. No. What should we be looking to in terms of increasing digital access for scholarship to rare and archive physical materials like you were talking about? And are there lessons you know, from the pandemic that might become a boon in new types of research if, if more materials can be brought online into a digital realm for scholars to access? So I think that the what the pandemic did, uh, this is definitely not limited to the realm of scholarship, but the pandemic accelerated a lot of a lot of trends. I, I would say that in talking to other institutions that host researchers and foster research, and also in reading developments at other at other institutions, it's pretty clear that remote research, while it certainly was an increasing trend, while more resources were devoted to it as time has gone on, it's now seen as non-optional. Whereas Hmm. before, uh, traditional on-site physical scholarship uh, was seen as the norm. But then once it was non-optional, a lot of institutions had to figure out how they're going to, to do this. Luckily, the the you know we, we, the Folger have been thinking about this for a long time. The Folger was going to be closed for renovations, no matter what. Right. <laughs> so we we closed to the public in January of 2020. Uh, March 1st, 2020 was the final on-site performance of Folger Theater. It was the the closing night of Mary Wise of Windsor. So. By March of 2020, we were going to be closed. You know, we were going to be closed and have an active construction site for quite a while. The physical closure of the Folger actually didn't affect us nearly as much as as other institutions would have. So, so there's considerably more disruption on the, the the public programming side. I think that one of the the lessons, and this is from conversations with with scholars, is that again. This is not this is not a before and after. It's just more like an enhancement or acceleration. There's a lot of research efficiencies that can be wrung out working remote. And again, I don't want to make it sound like scholars were not doing this already. But in order to do research more efficiently, uh, fr- frequently scholars will do a lot of their preliminary work in terms of identifying materials that they would like to see prior to physically coming to the Folger. Um, and now, at the moment, they can't come to the Folger and, and see materials. So I think that the, the practice of only being able to look at the, the uh, bibliographic data or metadata that the Folger can offer about the collection items, and then whatever digitized rep- representations we have of those items, that I think will foster more efficient research because there's a lot to be said about being in person with the object, you know, whether it's a book or manuscript or, or whatever else. As you're studying it, you can get about I don't know 80 percent of the value of the being with the object by seeing a, a properly digitized version of of the object. It's never going to give you the the same sensory feedback. 
there are people who are interested in what's in the books. And there are people who are interested in the books as books. Quite frequently, they're the same people, but but a book historian is going to look at a book differently or uh, differently than um, somebody who's researching the the history of early modern medicine. If you're researching the history of early modern medicine, the facts about the book's production are material but secondary. If you're doing book history, the facts of the book's production uh, is usually primary. You want to know where the book was made, where they got the text from, how the, any illustrations were manufactured. Was this book legally produced? Um, there were pirated, <laughs> pirated uh, unlicensed uh, books in the early modern era, just the same way that there are pirated movies uh, on the internet oh. today. The more digitized material there, are, there is out in the, in the world, the more accessible it is uh, around the world. So yeah, I, I remember very early in, in my time at the Folger, I was in a conference in the UK and I ran into a couple of scholars in India and they mentioned that they didn't have access to early English books online, which is a, a commercial product that universities license. And it's digitized copies of varying quality of, of early modern books, exactly what it sounds like. And so I, I said to the scholar, so your, your, your university in India doesn't have access to Evo. He said, no, there is no, they both said there, there are no universities in India that have access to Evo. And so uh, there, there have been a lot of resources that, that are that since that, have, that are now freely available and, and are continuously um, you know made available. But yes, in in American universities and colleges that don't have that are not large and have to really focus their expenditures, they might not have access to the same types of, of resources. The more libraries, museums, archives make their uh, materials accessible to the public. Two things happen. First, that's really their mission. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's privately owned, nonprofits, uh, publicly owned. One way or another, there's supposed to be some sort of public mission. That's why nonprofits are not taxed by the government is because right. they're fulfilling some sort of mission for the for the public good. And so this gives them the ability to enhance their to enhance their mission. I, I would say another kind of side effect of the the pandemic has been that a lot of institutions are probably they're used to not paying for travel now. And certainly a lot of that is coming back. But, you know, when your travel budget drops 90% in one year, you know, it's easy to keep, just like with any, with, with most, most institutions, you know, you, you ask for an increase or, or contemplate a decrease based on last year's numbers, whatever the budget line is. And so all of a sudden, if the travel budget line has dropped to nearly nothing. You've got to then re-justify why it's necessary to physically travel to do research. I'm hearing that that's kind of a tough conversation at a lot of a lot of institutions, which are mostly universities. And kind of adjacent to that is a lot of people are concerned about their carbon footprint and you know, whether or not. And I, I've seen this come up rather suddenly when talking about uh, also events, you know, not, not just research trips, but also uh, events like conferences where people will say, matter of fact, I, I just, I just heard a colleague at another institution say that, that her institution had uh, for environmental reasons clamped down on, on travel, you know, because the, the university is trying to, to reduce their level of, of carbon emissions uh, with the bonus that they also uh, get, <laughs> frees up money to, to, to spend on other things. So 
anyhow, I, I think a lot of it, it remains to be. I, I, I'm not. If I could predict the future, I'd be trading bonds and not working in a in a Shakespeare library. But I think a lot of these these trends will will continue. It'll be fascinating to see how whether things will um, kind of slowly uh, revert to the mean and which things will will continue. I, I suspect that a lot of these trends uh, are here to stay, though. Oh, yeah. I think this is the way forward. I don't think there's a return. And it'd be interesting to see how much of the budget starts to go towards more digital efforts. You know, I was thinking when you were talking to a difference between digital and just straight tech, I think, because you had mentioned in your intro too, I and mean, there's something about content that goes into that, you know, in a way that pure tech doesn't, right? It's just a function of a system versus yep. digital, which then gets these other things. And I feel like we're in the moment coming through. I There at least was an awakening during the pandemic, you know, and maybe it's the rise of digital asset management, uh, what that could be just within organizations themselves. You know, I had a lot of conversations with, I forget one org, it was even like, it's just in a printout on somebody's desk. Like someone's going to have to figure out how to get back in a building to get this sheet so we can move things forward. And it was like, because you just didn't think, right? Okay, well, I need to have it here. And what's a Q drive? How do I use it? Or what are the systems? Yeah. I, I'm seeing more people and more tools coming available. But you know, if I recall correctly with you, we got into initial exploratory conversations about a, what we were calling at the time a digital asset platform. We weren't right. calling it a system. Uh, and that was like 2015. But I'm just curious, you know, can you tell us a bit about what drove you when you were you know, you were what a year or two into the position, and it. You know, I think we did a roadmap with you, but then this really became where you wanted to drive a lot of attention. I mean, what was it back then, 2015, 2014, where you're like, this asset platform is, this is what we've got to get into. So when uh, Folger's been around for a while, between the records that uh, the Folgers kept when they were collecting their books and everything that they collected. We've got roughly a century of worth of, of assets that we've been generating wow. along the way. And that includes the, the tens of thousands of images in the image collection, largely derived from, from digitized books and manuscripts, the audio recordings of uh, lectures and recordings, uh, you know, concert recordings, video in various formats, data sets, um, which... Uh, you know, I think people thought of it as just spreadsheets. They're actually data sets and no way to get these things out into the, the public. In the vast majority of cases, all these assets were either owned by the Folger or in a few cases, they're in the, the public domain. And that was part of, of my initial remit of, of when I joined the Folger um, was to try to figure out how do we take what we have and then bring it out to the world in a in a way that's going to going to be beneficial? It was pretty clear to me that we needed to have some sort of consolidation. I actually started thinking about this even before I I started the Folgers. So it's pretty common in in academic institutions to bring a candidate in for a job talk. Is I think pretty much ubiquitous when it comes to comes to professors. So the, the person comes and gives a talk about uh, something that you know their, their past work and maybe reflects on the work that they that they would like to do uh, if they are chosen for the, the, the open position so I actually proposed having some sort of single platform for the Folger uh, in February 2013 you know weeks before I was offered the position but yeah it, it didn't seem like 
having a consolidated asset management solution was something that we could hold off on. That uh, it was either stick with the, the 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 disparate things that we that we had, or just have these materials not have a venue for for publication. And and so this seemed like the, the best path forward. So when you say disparate, just for the audience too, I mean, when I hear you say these disparate systems, what you're really talking about is if you kept those, you'd have to find a way to normalize all of the data, make a system that could call across all of these individual systems through some kind of probably custom coded application protocol interface or an API. And then you'd have to maintain those on top of maintaining the systems and worry about cycle of life. So coming up with a, an idea for the system, yes, I could see exactly why that it's probably the route and it felt right. And you said the word Miranda. So that is, that's the application that it became. That's the name it took on eventually. But so in common parlance, I think a lot of people listening have probably heard the phrase at least, you know, build or buy. Should I build this or should I buy it? In this case, you decided to build. Can you tell us a little why you went that route instead of, you know, was there just nothing commercially available as a SaaS tool that you could have used? And yeah, tell us a little bit about that. I don't know if we're doing this today that we've done something that was as highly customized as Miranda, uh, but I don't know that we wouldn't. <laughs> and the, the the reason I say that is that these the digital asset systems that are mainly pitched for galleries, archives, and libraries and museums um, have come a long way in the last seven years. They're a lot more what I would consider professional. They are definitely lagging behind the asset management systems that say a for-profit media company would use, but they are more flexible. So one of the big things, the Folger, one of the things is called is a special collections library, which might not mean anything to, to, to folks outside the library world, but a special collections library could be many different things. It does not necessarily limit itself to books and other printed media. They are usually focused on not something that's generalized, like a public library you know, has as many different wide range of subjects. Special collections libraries are, are usually more focused on particular topics, in some cases a particular author, different types of, of, of assets. So for example, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has a library. Obviously they are uh, they have got a lot of audio in their their library and they don't have classical music or world music or, or I mean, they, they might they may have a little bit, but the focus is on a particular type of music generated in a particular type era. And so they, they collect media that's uh, you know, particular types of media that, that pertain to, to that musical genre. So because of their nature, special collections libraries have to describe their collections and the items in their collections in ways that are often different from and almost always deeper than a general a library with a general collection. Hmm. So in the case of Shakespeare, we start with the Library of Congress uh, subject headings, which have a lot of uh, things about Shakespeare in them. Having multiple copies of the same title is not uncommon, but having multiple copies of the same title that have different characteristics is uncommon if you're approaching it from a library system perspective. So for example, the, the, the differences between the copies of Shakespeare's first folio are relevant. Some are missing pages. 
Some of them have uh, annotations in them from previous owners. Some of them have evidence of, of use. Um, like there's, there's one that has the outline of scissors. There's another copy that, that we have that's got a doodle from a young girl uh, writing in her, her, her 18th century parents uh, <laughs> copy of, of the first folio. <laughs> you can only imagine the reaction of the parents when they, they see that, uh, you know, their, their, their daughter has written, uh, you know, a little note uh, and, and a picture of a house in, uh, in a book that is today probably worth, you know, some number of millions of dollars. <laughs> so, wow. but, but in any case, the, the software is catching up with, with, with the needs of special collections libraries I would say that the component-driven nature of Miranda, you know, I, I always thought that that was a great architecture to, to to have. In the end, if one is building a platform, that the ability to have it built in a modular way so that we can sw- swap out pieces instead of just being able to, to do, you know, big columphing upgrades of a major software version, that I think was the most intelligent part of the architecture. You know, if we decide that we don't like one part, we we develop a, a replacement part, swap it in. We don't have to re- replace the whole. And we, we've continued to to keep Miranda up to date on the on the back end. Um, and, and so that that architecture seems to have it seems to have worked well from a sustainability perspective. It's great to hear, especially for a lot of custom builds, you know, yeah, the, the life cycle isn't as long and it is usually Either it's all or nothing when you got to get a new piece put in or move something around. So that's, I think that's interesting. And hopefully some of the people listening, if you're thinking about a build versus buy and that sort of modular componentry into your development seems like something that's worth it. So just continue on. So, you know, 2020 comes along, you have all this experience of getting all of this material ready and online and proper taxonomies. It's easy to find and you can pull it up. How did it help that experience help? The organization overall, if it did, as you you already were planning to be remote anyways with the building going down. But you know, a lot of organizations when we got into the pandemic, they have never thought about it, digital asset management before. Where are these files? How do I share them? What is going on? And then somebody randomly says, But we have SharePoint, but no one's ever put anything in it, no one knows how to use it, no one knows how to recall anything. You know, yeah, I'm just curious for an organization like yourself that that put the work in ahead of time and a lot of the intellectual work that goes into thinking about what you do with your assets. How do you call them up? Who shares them? Yeah, what was it like for y'all when, when it all happened? It's there March 2020-ish. And I think this was like a lot of other a lot of other institutions. We we did start immediately thinking about what we can offer to the outside world and a reaction to the lockdowns and the fact that a lot of people were going to be were going to be you know confined to their their homes for the most part. So one of the things that we did was because so many of our Folger Shakespeare edition books are used in classrooms, we did a couple of things. We opened up the the seven full cast, full length recordings that we have of uh, Shakespeare plays. So the top six best-selling plays uh, plus Richard III, you know, the big ones, Hamlet, Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, uh, et cetera. And we made them available uh, free of charge to anyone who wanted to listen to them. Those were, were commercial products. So our, our, our publishing partner, Simon & Schuster, agreed to, uh, to allow us to open it up and um, let anybody listen to, uh, to, to those recordings. 
Um, we were told, um, it's, it's anecdotal, but um, we were told that teachers really appreciated this because uh, suddenly they were thrown into the situation where they're having to do remote lessons. And, you know, normally they would read portions of the, of, of the play out loud in the, in the classroom, and they don't have the opportunity to do that. Now they can hear professional actors read the, read the recordings. Folger uh, created a, uh, a filmed performance of Macbeth that was filmed in the, uh, in, in, in the Folger Theater. It was uh, co-directed by uh, Teller of Penn, Penn and Teller. And so we quickly scrambled around. This is offered as a, as a commercial product. Quickly scrambled around, got permission from everybody we needed to get permission from to rip the, the DVD of Macbeth, the Teller Macbeth, um, and put it online. Between that and the, the audio recordings, um, we were able to reach tens of thousands of, of people. I don't, I don't know what the final count was. But the, uh, the, the Macbeth is still up on YouTube um, and can, can be seen. And it's been, been watched, as I say, uh, quite a few times. And, and it's made its way into, into uh, to, to school lessons as well. So, so, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the fact that we had already been thinking in terms of how to exploit our assets, how to get it out in front of the public, thinking in terms of audiences, audience reception, uh, user journeys. I, I think that this this all helped us a lot as we were thrown into the the, the pandemic world like everyone else. So I think we're going to make sure we link to the Penn Macbeth or the Teller Macbeth. Sorry, uh, that's on YouTube. And with that in mind too, I'm just curious for your thoughts. You know, how do you think new digital asset management systems are going to play into the museum space going forward? You know, like is there more access for people to see things ahead of time? Do we do we still physically go to museums? What are your thoughts there? So I have two, two main thoughts. The first is that digital asset management is part of the plumbing. If you're a, a museum or another cultural institution that is trying to reach the public, even if it's not proper, if it's not exposed at all to the public, they, they're, they're still, you've got some sort of way to, to track your, your digital assets, even if it's not a formal a formal system, or even if it's something like SharePoint, the other is, I guess I'm, at least for the digital asset management systems that I'm familiar with, they're great if you know what you're looking for. But if you don't, they're not a particularly satisfying experience. <laughs> so if you know that you are looking for images of Macbeth or recordings of Macbeth, and you want to see them from you know th- this century, they're great. You know, you can the systems that do what they're what they're supposed to do, but the, but they're not really interpretive. They're not designed to be interpretive. So I'm not not I'm not faulting them at all. But the one thing that cultural institutions have to do if they're reaching the public is do some sort of interpretation. And all all a digital asset management system will ever do is collect digital objects, information about the digital objects, and then put tools on top of them that will display the information, the object, and help you find them and, and maybe do other things like create a list that you can turn into a bibliography or a, a data set or something like that. But that's all they are. They're not going to be the same deeply satisfying experience that you get when you uh, see a physical exhibition that's done really well or when you hear a lecture from a, an expert that is has 
brought slides and you know other media to try to to tell you why something's important, to tell you why an object has survived, you know, <laughs> why this should be important for us to learn about. A digital asset management system is never really going to be a substitute for for any of those things. I don't think that's as much of a challenging statement to museums because museums have always had interpretation built into them, or at least they they have for a very long time. I, I think I guess I'm just kind of reaching back to the early history of museums. I mean, I think museums in their their most primitive state were kind of like digital asset management systems. You know, you you had a bunch of Greek and Roman statues, you had some uh, old master paintings. You put them in rooms, and people would walk in and look at them. And you were supposed to be inspired, like the the the, the name museum w- w- would imply. But yeah, I mean, for for however many years now, museums assume that they're going to be helping their visitors learn more about what they're seeing. I think for libraries and archives, that has not traditionally been a mode that they're used to. Libraries and archives are much more Passive, and I, again, I don't mean that in a, in a in a deleterious sort of sort of uh, sort of way, or or, or to, to, to denigrate the way that they have. You know, you come to a library or an archive to see materials because you have something that you, you have questions you want to answer. You know, you, have, you, know, you want to do research, and then a librarian or an archivist or uh, you know, whoever's helping you will help you find that material. Will tell you things about that material. Might even. You know, or, or frequently, if, if, it's, if it's a place like the Folger, will help think with you about what you are trying to accomplish. But interpretation, you know, the idea that, that we're going to take something and highlight it and synthesize a narrative and produce lessons for, you know, whatever, you know, whatever that looks like, and then putting it in front of people is almost, I, I, I would say, at least from you know, my own observations, that's almost seen as presumptuous. Like you're not supposed mm-hmm. to tell people what they should be interested in. <laughs> you know? But museums do that all the time. Libraries and archives, certainly for a number of years now, have become more museum-like, the Folger included, um, in that they're eager to tell the stories about their collection, stories in their collection, get things out in front of the public. I, I actually think this is a very positive development Digital asset management systems, I think, are a, a part of what cultural institutions need to use to put things out in front of the public. But I don't think that they're going to ever provide those interpretive structures, except insofar as they can feed other systems, digital systems, uh, that do uh, help uh, with that with that interpretive layer. That's uh, super helpful. Yeah, I mean, I could see the the digital asset management systems, the infrastructure they they le- they help you to leverage to then have the creative layer, the interpretive layer, the and then who's doing it best and who's building that. That makes a lot of sense. So this next question, you know, pontificating into the future, but uh, you know, everyone's sort of got ideas coming through the pandemic of like, how can I not get caught unawares again? <laughs> so if that's a possibility, none of us can really read the future, uh, as you alluded to earlier. But um, as a leader in the nonprofit industry, you know, what specific advice would you give to organizations that want to try to future-proof themselves? Sure. Well, as I said before, we were. Recording, um, funny you should ask, because when I was in the UK last week, the first is the importance of, of teams and how they're organized. 
that's not something that's ever going to go obsolete. Uh, humans work the way humans work. Our habits can change. Our circumstances can change. But the way that teams are led and motivated and work together is pretty durable. Again, I don't mean that the technology, I just mean the way the, the humans are interact. So making sure that uh, team leads have clear missions that they are leading their teams toward having, you know, it doesn't need to be excessively delineated, but having defined roles uh, within the team and making sure that people know what they're responsible for. That's also very important. One thing that the nonprofit space doesn't do a lot of that I think would be very beneficial is doing more management training mm. and leadership training. Yeah. A bit more of that in a bit. The second thing is that infrastructure matters should be more of a top of mind concern for leaders, I would say, including senior leadership. And senior leadership does not need to, uh, senior leaders do not need to, to necessarily know what uh, the best cloud solution is for a given product, but should have enough familiarity to be able to know that digital projects are being managed properly. It also, uh, you know, just like we were talking about, about earlier, having the simplest possible infrastructure, thinking about things like life cycles and uh, not assuming that software is going to live forever. That's also very important. I would also say to knowing knowing what's going to endure and what's not. Content is pretty durable. You know, you can you can open up a Word file from 25 years ago or a JPEG from 2004, and it'll look pretty much the way it uh, it, it did back then. So making sure that your those types of of <laughs> kind of hard digital assets are being taken care of properly and. Uh, you know that that's that's all part of, of and then and then the tools on top of them are, are being managed properly too. You know that's I think a key infrastructure concern. Number three, expertise has no transitive property. But that, that that I mean, just because you're good and knowledgeable in one area and able to apply that knowledge effectively, that doesn't mean that you are necessarily good in an area that sort of kind of looks like that. It also doesn't mean that someone who's an expert is good at managing other people. And that's that's a mistake that, that's definitely not limited to the nonprofit world. As I mentioned, the <laughs> I, I spent uh, 13 years in the, the Marine Reserves. They don't assume that you know anything in the military. By that, I mean, you could be a colonel with over 20 years uh, being an officer and get promoted to be a general. And even though as a colonel, you've been working around generals for a long time, you know what they do. You know how to be a leader. They're going to send you to general school. Uh, so they, the, the assumption is not that, that uh, you know, you're starting with a blank slate. The assumption is you do know some things, but we don't know what you don't know. And we're going to teach you in a, in a methodical sort of way. There should not be the presumption that because you are the world's foremost expert in anything that you are therefore uh, capable of leading a team that, that that has largely to do with your area of, of expertise. The fourth thing, and I think this is one of the tougher things about the the world that we're in, is the you need to distinguish between marketing and communications and publications. I will give my definition of those three things and how they are they're discrete. Marketing is figuring out who your audience is, whether it's 
current audience or an aspirational audience, communication is more ephemeral. It is how you're community, how you are reaching the audiences uh, that you've discovered in marketing and publication. I distinguish between publication and communication because publications are more durable. They might eventually fall away because everything has a life cycle. Um, but just in the same way that uh, we're still reading things that Shakespeare wrote in the 1500s, but we, we are not, uh, what was not preserved was uh, the, you know, the, the publicity around the, the plays, except in a very uh, small number of cases, none of them about Shakespeare. Publications are durable. Publications are assets. They're intellectual property. They should be treated differently than communication. I think when marketing and communication and publications exist on a continuum, if they are blurred together, um, if they're combined, I think it's really messy. And that, not to say that uh, if you're sending out a newsletter that you shouldn't also be, you know, that, that, that you shouldn't also be trying to figure out uh, from the response who the who the people are or anything like that. That that's a bad thing. But yeah, being able to to, to keep those things straight and to try to figure out when you're doing which one is critical. The last one is the last lesson is difficult for a lot of people in cultural institutions to hear, which is that audiences will never enjoy precisely what we enjoy in the way that we enjoy it. But that, I mean, I'll use myself. I, I love Shakespeare. I've loved Shakespeare for a very long time. There are certain plays that I like, such as say Richard II, which are just not popular plays. I think Richard the play is a, is a superb uh, is a you know, superb play. If you if you've never seen um, the uh, the BBC Hollow Crown version of Richard the Second, which was made uh, several years ago, uh, you should. It's, it's a revelation. It's it's a it's, it's a wonderful production. However, I recognize that not everybody likes Richard the um, Second, or indeed likes Shakespeare um, the way I I like Shakespeare. And audiences, uh, popular audiences, will find. Uh, certain things interesting that a lot of people who are um, more deeply enmeshed in in uh, in a field uh, don't think are interesting, or vice versa. Um, and it is often a disappointment to discover that. Uh, and, and I think I think it comes from a very good place. Most people who work for cultural, cultural institutions uh, work because work in them because they love something about what it is that they are trying to get out into the world. They're trying to share it with other people. Um, and, uh, but I, I don't think we need to be disappointed when that, when that happens. I think that, um, you know, I, I don't think that that's a, a bad thing. I think the most important thing is that people are um, able to, to benefit in some way from, um, from, from what we're offering um, and and not to be disappointed that like it's, it's, I don't think it's our job to train people with what they should like. I think we should offer and help guide and explain. And if people come to an, to the same understanding that that we do, great. If they don't, well, that's um, at, at the very least um, we we've made the offer and that we've um, we've gotten things out there. So that's awesome. Thank you for that. I mean, recap for everyone. I mean, I think you're right. Teams and the way we organize ourselves and stuff's not going away. You got to think about it. You got to think about who's doing the leading. Can you motivate? How to reorganize for most effectiveness on infrastructure matters. Just for everyone here, I mean, that's technical infrastructure, the underpinnings. 
to make the work, you know, happen and facilitate. Uh, expertise has no transitive property. I like that one a lot. Uh, marketing communications publication. I've never heard it phrased that way. I hope people in the audience uh, listen to that. I thought that was really interesting. I do think that's a great take you have there. I, I can't see it's messy. I mean, one thing I have talked about on podcasts and just written about and talked about with the friends too, is just, is the communications tent in the nonprofit sector too big? Like you have technical project management along with people who do press releases. Um, it just, I don't know. There's something about that. And I like the way you've broken, the way you've set it up here with marketing communications, publication makes a lot of sense. Audiences will never enjoy precisely what we enjoy the way we enjoy it. I really like that. You know, we've spent a lot of time, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in my career. It's really hard. It, the audience is coming. They need information in a different way and di to digest it differently than someone who spends eight hours a day looking at it and thinking about it. And that's their whole job because they're not coming for that amount of time. They can have a smaller bit of time. They want smaller chunks. They want something a little differently. And how do we, how do we take everything we know and package it? And then to, I think to your point, like take a look at that data and see how people are reacting and how do we tune it over time? It doesn't have to always be perfect on day one. So thank you for that. And Eric, thank you for a great conversation today. I, I really like this uh, modern, how do we trans digitally transform in the modern era with the underpinning of Shakespeare and early modern history there. So uh, as everyone who's been listening knows, I do have one question that I end every episode with because we have created a Spotify channel. So anyone who's also a listener of this podcast can grab that Spotify channel and feel get a boost and feel motivated if you're on a run or you're working and you, you just want to get a little bit out of your own head and enjoy what you're doing. So Eric, my question to you is what is your go-to song when you need a boost and why? So I, that is a great question. And I thought about this a lot. I wasn't able to narrow it down to a single song. Um, so I will give you three and you could pick one if you want. <laughs> <laughs> three is um, a magic number. So if I need encouragement while I'm working something tough, uh, I find there's nothing better than classic country. And um, the song that I would pick as an example of that would be Merle Haggard's Working Man Blues. <laughs> okay. Um, if I am uh, kind of ideating while I'm a, a, in a creative mode, uh, resorting to classic jazz, of course, is, is, um, is, is, is a, a great thing. Uh, so I would say the song Sweet Georgia Brown. Um, which is uh, the Harlem Globetrotters theme, but uh, it's been recorded. It's actually, uh, I, I just looked it up. That song is a hundred years old. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's, it's one of, uh, it's been done a million different ways, uh, you know, to, to the point of, of ideation. Um, if I am looking to be inspired to greatness, I love an energetic classical composition. Um, and I would say the overture to the marriage of Figaro uh, by Mozart. Um, I think that is, that's probably my favorite musical piece of all time. I think it is absolutely perfect is, is from note one to the final note. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. We're going to put all of those into the Spotify channel. Oh, very uh, good. <laughs> and we will, and then we do uh, every other Friday, like uh, the podcast comes out every other Friday. And in between those Fridays, we also promote some of the tunes from our guests. So you'll have three slots of that over the course of time too. Very good. Eric. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for listening. Join us again for more engaging ideas with your host, Parsons TKO CEO, Tony Kopechny. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a comment and share with your friends. Send us your feedback at createchange at parsonstko.com.